Well, good afternoon and welcome to this last seminar of our ASI convention for this year, our last series of seminars. And we're so glad that you've joined us here this afternoon for this important topic. And I would just like to thank each of you for taking the time to join us here. I see we have uh, 13 participants uh, so far and we're just uh, excited for the uh, people that have taken the time to join us here. Uh, we're also very grateful for um, Stephen Grabner uh, being willing to do this presentation for us. And this topic that we'll be discussing this afternoon is entitled God's Wrath in Revelation. Very intriguing topic here. And I would just like to, before we go into an introduction of our presenter, for those that are perhaps just joining us for the first time, uh, on a seminar here. I'd like to just explain a little bit about the platform that you're watching this on. So of course uh, you have your video screen in front of you there, but you'll also notice that there's um, a chat section below, depending on whether you're joining on a, a computer or a mobile device. Uh, it'll be in different places depending on which one, but there'll be a chat section there that you'll be able to post any comments or questions. I see that a number of people have made a few comments here already. And uh, we're just um, welcoming any of those comments or questions throughout the presentation. You can post those questions and then we're gonna reserve about 10 or 15 minutes at the end of the presentation for any of those questions to be asked uh, to Stephen here. And so we'll get right into our introduction here. Stephen, if you'd be willing to uh, join us here, you can turn your video on and I'm just going to make sure that everyone can see you. So with the uh, presentation today, Stephen will be presenting to us. Again, uh, the topic is God's wrath in Revelation. And Stephen comes to us from a, a very diverse and rich background of experience. He's uh, currently president of OCI International a ministry dedicated to serving and supporting ministries in over 70 countries. He has served as pastor, educator, and evangelist. Stephen is also adjunct professor at Southern University, teaching Revelation for the graduate program. He's a leading scholar on the hymns in Revelation. He received his master's from Yale University and doctorate from University of South Africa. Stephen's interest in Revelation precedes his conversion. Raised in a Jewish family, he encountered Revelation for the first time while reading the New Testament in his early 20s. This sparked a lifelong interest to more fully understanding this fascinating book. So Stephen, we're very grateful that you would share from that experience uh, with us this afternoon. Before we begin, I'd like to just ask if we could join in prayer as we begin our time together in this important topic. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we've just been so blessed over this uh, past few days here to be spending time learning more about Revelation. And Lord, um, there is perhaps a lot of questions people have about your wrath and Revelation and how to relate to that and, and what exactly it means. So I pray that in this time that we spend together, Lord, that you would be able to provide the clarity and a, a true picture of your character and how much you love us. And so I pray that in this time together, your Holy Spirit would inspire, would guide and direct our thoughts, and that you would also be with Stephen as he shares. So we ask this in your precious name. Amen. All right. Thank you. So, 
Yes, Stephen, the time is yours. And again, uh, just please keep in mind, you're able to uh, just use the chat box there to ask any questions as we go along here and we'll address those at the end. So Stephen, thank you. Great, thanks, Curtis. And I just want to echo what Curtis mentioned uh, about uh, writing down or jotting down any questions. Just for those of you that have joined us uh, from this end of the platform, you know, where I'm on Zoom with Curtis, and that's uh, the rest of you I can't see at all. So um, by faith, you're there. And what I'd like to do is shift and share my screen. So that'll give me a moment to get that up. And hopefully everyone can see this. Again, our topic today is God's wrath in Revelation in the book of Revelation. And um, I'm going to begin clearly with Revelation chapter uh, 14 and the third angel's message in particular. So our theme for this ASI conference has been the three angels message. And each of the seminars have been dealing with a different aspect or a different view. This track has been on understanding revelation. And I was able to join in yesterday morning with, with Dr. Tonstead and his presentation. Uh, unfortunately, missed Dr. Wallen's presentation. But again, we're trying to bring out some of the, the meaning, the structure of the book of Revelation as a whole. And the three angels' message, without question, are vital for Seventh-day Adventists. They form our, our, our identity. And so the third angel's message, as we have on the screen, there is another angel, a third one, following them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And so as we read this passage, this part of the third angel's message, naturally lots of imagery comes to our, our, our mind. Um, first of all, thinking back to the first part here, a third one followed them. This refers us back obviously to the first and second angel's messages. Second angel talked about Babylon being fallen and Babylon also having a wine of passion of immorality. So um, then the third angel's message picks up on that, and there's this wine of the wrath of God poured out in the cup of his anger. And so we have these different words, really two main words, which we'll look at momentarily in the Greek, uh, depicting this aspect. And the reason this is so important for us, particularly as Seventh-day Adventists, as we come across this, it almost sounds, it, it does sound in a first reading that God changes from the position of being a compassionate, loving God to being a God that um, is able to give greater torture, let's say, than perhaps Satan is. And this is um, you know, a very powerful image. Then the verse goes on in verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So information is just jam-packed, uh, full of threads that we could follow. The idea of the smoke going up forever and ever, their torment, no rest day or night. You know, what, are all, what does all this imagery mean? You know, our topic, our function is really going to be to examine and explore how revelation relates to these images, these metaphors, of God's wrath, God's, God's anger and God's wrath, two different words that are used here in the original text and how do we understand them? 
And I'd just like to say, you know, briefly, as we kind of continue with this, one thing that I say when I teach Revelation is that Revelation doesn't mean what it says, but it means what it means. So Revelation doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. And we think of this all throughout the book of Revelations. For example, in Revelation chapter one, there's the depiction of Christ um, and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. That doesn't mean that he actually literally has a sword coming out of his mouth. That's what it says, but that's not what it means. What it means is his word is powerful like a sword. And so as we read through Revelation, it's important for us to keep this principle in mind that Revelation doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. And determining that layer of meaning is important for us and takes us really delving into the entire structure of the book of Revelation, um, becoming very familiar with the book, understanding its, its nuances. Uh, I like to use the illustration of a tapestry and you have these, when a tapestry is woven, you have the different threads that move together. And John weaves a magnificent tapestry using verbal threads to communicate his picture. And so the question for us today is, um, how does the wrath of God fit into this? How does the wrath of God relate to this tapestry? So um, a couple of uh, thoughts here. First of all, there's the wine of the wrath. That's the Greek word thymos of God, and then the cup of his anger, orge. And so these are two Greek words that are used throughout the book of Revelation, and we're going to see exactly where they're used and who, who they're used by in, in what sense. And I think there's a really important distinction here, which we'll uncover momentarily as to the way John uses these words in Revelation. But let me also share some quotations here. These are from a couple of commentators. This is from Stephen Smalley, uh, who wrote, the, wrote a commentary called The Revelation to John. Uh, page 366, he writes this, those who consistently reject divine love will experience God's animosity untempered by mercy. So again, this is um, not a rare reading. It's not all commentators have this kind of a reading, but it's a common reading as well that then individuals who reject God's love, clearly the lost would be in that category, not only experience God's wrath, however we understand that, but notice how he's framed it. They experience God's animosity. And so, you know, animosity is this really personal, almost vendetta. Um, Brian Blunt, um, in his commentary on Revelation, says the wine in God's cup is much more potent than anything Babylon or Rome may have concocted. And Babylon and Rome are, um, Rome as an interpretation of Babylon is very commonplace in critical commentaries. And so he's saying the wine in God's cup is much stronger, much more powerful, uh, you know, almost as if the torture is greater that God's doing than anything that Rome could have put together. Now, those are not exclusive readings of the book of Revelation, but they are not rare readings of the book of Revelation either. And so it's really important for us to kind of think through what is John trying to communicate to us with this imagery of the wrath of God. Um, C.H. Dodd, you know, earlier in the early 1900s, he wrote this book, The Apostolic Preaching and Its Development, commenting on the book of Revelation. He says, we are bound to judge 
that in its conception of the character of God and its attitude to men, the book falls below the level, not only of the teaching of Jesus, but of the best parts of the Old Testament. So for God, the book of Revelation, you know, is, is lower category than some parts of the Old Testament. And this is largely due to the understanding of the wrath of God and the topic of the wrath of God. And historically, we know that the book of Revelation uh, had a, in its history, had a hard time finding its place in the biblical canon, particularly because of this. You know, really, there's questions about its canonical status. Should we consider the book of Revelation as part of the rest of the New Testament? Because as on a surface reading, the picture of God that's displayed here is so antithetical to the picture that we see in the life of Jesus. Question is, is this really an inspired book? So um, uh, J.P.M. Sweet in his commentary on Revelation asks this provoking question. He answers this question uh, in the negative. He answers it in the negative, but he asks the question this way, does Christ finally conquer in the manner of the beast? And this is really the fundamental question. You know, if we see the wrath of God uh, simply as animosity or vindictiveness or something in along that track, then, yeah, then we would say, yes, that Christ or God is finally conquering the way the beast conquers. Now, Sweet answers this question, no, he's arguing against this, but it's an important question for us to wrestle with. Wrestle with. Does the book of Revelation come to the point where the victory of Christ and the victory of God necessarily must be through the same means of force and power that the beast used? Now, we are gonna give an answer to that question like Sweet does, which is no, that's not how God brings his victory. Um, and again, as you read through the book of Revelation, it's important for us to understand that one of the things John does in the book of Revelation is to invert symbols and to invert meanings. And by that, I mean, if, if you read Revelation carefully, you find, for example, the church of Smyrna is described as being poor. Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. So from an earthly perspective, they're poor, but from a heavenly viewpoint, they are rich. Laodicea, on the other hand, thinks it's rich from an earthly point of view, but from a heavenly perspective, is poor. Um, the church, think of the woman in Revelation chapter 12. She is chased by the dragon, and she flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days. So the, from an earthly perspective, the woman in Revelation 12 looks like she's persecuted and looks like she's defeated. But the first part of Revelation 12 tells us that she is a queen and she's standing on the moon. She's a conqueror. She has a diadem, she has a crown on her head, this diadem on her head and stars. So she's a victorious queen. So there's this earthly viewpoint and this heavenly. And in the book of Revelation, the concept of power and conquering is also inverted. So uh, Christ conquers through self-sacrifice, as we'll see as we unfold, and the beast conquers through, uh, through destruction. So this question is very important for us. Does Christ finally conquer in the manner after the beast? And we would give a direct answer, no, to that question. But as we think of this concept of God's wrath, 
Um, God's wrath obviously is a large biblical topic, and I'm mostly going to be really focusing in Revelation, but I want to take a few minutes to give some kind of a broader context, broader viewpoint here, and illustrate that there are different ways of looking at God's wrath. So, for example, in Numbers chapter 25, this is the experience, and it's connected to the book of Revelation because the imagery is utilized in, in the seven churches. But this is the story in Numbers 25 where Balaam um, was able to seduce the children of Israel by teaching them to mingle with the Midianite women and partake of their, their sacrifices and their spiritual activities. And then a plague broke out. And so in Numbers 25, in verse four, it says, the Lord said to Moses, uh, after this plague had broken out because of God's wrath, it says, the Lord said to Moses, take the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So here's an example in scripture where God's wrath comes in reaction to idolatry of the people. And then God speaks to Moses uh, in a very distinct way, at least in this text. And this is the resolution, take these people and execute them. And then this would turn away the fierce anger of the Lord. So, you know, here is an aspect of judgment that's very clear in the text. And then uh, in Pitchocks and Prophets on page 455, commenting on this, Ellen White writes that all felt that the punishment was just and the people hastened to the tabernacle and with tears and deep humiliation confessed their sin. So here's a biblical example of a manifestation of the wrath of God, where there was this rebellion, there's this spiritual idolatry, immorality, and then there's this uh, plague that comes, and then there's this direct command from God, there's this execution of sentence, and then there turns out to be this repentance and confession. So this is a model that exists in scripture, and we need to recognize that. Of course, it's, it's also interesting if you continue in that story back in Numbers 25, there's the leader of Israel, Zimri, who in a high-handed way, um, you know, continues his adulterous or his immoral way, and then he's put to death by Phineas, and Phineas is commended for this. A very interesting dynamic to ask a number of questions about, but it seems, at least on a first read of this passage, that this is a very clear um, depiction of God's wrath in that circumstance. Another manifestation of God's wrath is mentioned in John chapter 3, verse 36. And John 3, 36 is as important as John 3, 16. And it tells us that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So notice the present tenses here. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey, does not believe, will not see life. That's a future tense, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's a present tense. So in some way, there is this aspect of the wrath of God currently being manifested. And we have the historic sense in the book of Numbers, and then we have a present tense here in the book of John. And then there's another example, of course, from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, where, um, again, present tense, God says, excuse me, Paul says, the wrath of God is, re is revealed, is being revealed, present participle, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
And then in the chapter, Paul continues and he describes how that wrath is manifested. He talks about God giving people over verses 24 through 28. And um, I would recommend you read those more carefully. So, but in each of these, these passages that God gave them over, for this reason, God gave them over, God gave them over. And the same uh, Greek word dynamai is used in the gospels, talking about Jesus being given over as well. And that Jesus was given over into the powers of darkness, that Jesus was given over uh, to the Jewish leaders. And he was given up, given over. And so here we see this connection. And so again, the concept of the wrath of God is a very broad concept. And we need to look at it in kind of a wide lens. But I want to narrow that lens, acknowledging the broader background, but I want to narrow that lens and look at it in, in the book of Revelation. So let's kind of turn there. And as, as we do, as we think about this, I think momentarily back to Revelation chapter um, 14. Let me just pause my slide for a moment. Uh, in Revelation chapter 14, you know, we had this image here of the wine of Babylon, the wine of the wrath of, of, of Babylon. And then, of course, in Revelation chapter 17, we find uh, uh, Babylon again displayed, and she's got a cup full of abominations in her hand. And so the, there's a play in imagery in the book of Revelation of the cup of Babylon, which is intoxicating in a destructive way and filled with the blood of the saints, we could say. And then there's this cup of God's wrath. And these are, you know, polar opposite images in the book of Revelation. And John does this throughout the entire book of Revelation, where he has these counter images. Uh, there's the seal of God and there's the, the mark of the beast. And, you know, throughout the book of Revelation, there's these images, there are the two cities and the two women. This is a common theme that John does. And so there's this theme on the cups. And again, just pointing back to this idea of Jesus being given up, we know that Jesus prayed to his father, remove this cup. And then there's many threads that we could ex explore here, but uh, let's continue with this concept in, the book, in Revelation as well. So let me get my presentation back up. So here's, um, pardon me, uh, here's a, Oops, let's see if I could go backwards. Pardon me, there we go. Thank you uh, for your patience. So here are the places in the book of Revelation where the, um, largely, where the two words are used in their broad sense in the noun form. Okay, so these are both used in the noun form. And so, for example, in Revelation 12, 12, it talks about the dragon who has great wrath because he's come down. And then Babylon has great wrath. And in Revelation 14.10, we find the wrath of God. And in Revelation 14.10, we find also the anger, the orge of God. So there are three places in the book of Revelation where these two words are used together. And they are Revelation 14.10, Revelation 16.19 and Revelation 19.15. And so they're going to be uh, key passages for us as we try to get a clearer meaning of the understanding of the wrath of God in the book of Revelation. There are many other passages. So chapter 15, verses 1 and 7 are talking about the wrath of God. So it's chapter 16.1. 
Um, and so is this. Uh, this is the cry, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of the Lamb and the Father. Revelation 11, 18 will be important for us momentarily. But so this is a kind of an overview of where these words are used in the book of Revelation, where the concepts are used. And particularly, there are three places where both words are used. And they're going to be very informative for us in our understanding of what's taking place in Revelation. Um, but there are of these, of these passages, you know, all of these passages are the word thymos and orge, they're both used in a noun form. There are three places where wrath is used in a verbal form. And these three places are Revelation 11, 18, Revelation 12, 12, and Revelation 12, 17, um, at least according to my study. So let, let me share these. And if you have your text, I hope you're following along with me if you have a the Bible in front of you. So in Revelation 11, 18, this is the uh, opening of the, or sounding of the seventh trumpet. This is a very climactic point in the book of Revelation. The kingdom becomes the kingdom of our God. It says in Revelation chapter 11 in verse 18, um, in verse 17 rather, we give you thanks, O God, our Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have begun to reign. Your reign has initiated. So this is an interesting point. Uh, at this point in the story, just toward the second coming, is when Revelation says God reign begins in this passage. Uh, so, you know, there's this initiation. Now, God's always sat on the throne. God's been ruler. But as we read Revelation carefully, we find that his rule is being contested. And so here in the storyline, your reign has begun. Then in verse, it continues, um, sorry, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You have received your great power. You've taken your great power and then have begun to reign. Verse 18, what's the response to that? Verse 18, and the nations were angry. So this is what the nations are feeling. This is a verbal tense. The nations were angry. And notice your wrath came. This is a noun. And so whenever John speaks of God's wrath, he always speaks of it as a noun, uh, something that God possesses, um, not something that God feels, not like an emotion that God has not in the verbal sense. The nations were angry. And then it's almost, you know, like this distant third party, your wrath came, like it showed up. So that's an important way for us to understand how John's relating to the wrath of God. Let's go to chapter 12. Satan is cast out of heaven. This is another place in Revelation 12 where it tells us that the reign of God has come. This is in relation to the cross. So there's two key markers here in Revelation. There's Revelation 12 and there's Revelation 11. There's the cross period and then there's just before the second coming. And in Revelation 12, it talks about the dragon was cast down to the earth, having great wrath. Again, there's this parsable, having great wrath, knowing he has a short time. And then at the end of Revelation 12, Revelation 12, 17, the dragon was enraged. So when John talks about the anger of the nations and the anger of Satan, he personalizes it. The dragon is enraged. The nations become angry. It's a personal thing. When he talks about wrath in relation to God, 
it's much more objectified. That's an important point for us to understand. And so orge really, if we are understand this, I think as Revelation is trying to apply, apply it for us or reveal it for us, is really it's God's settled response and reaction towards sin and the activity of Satan. So this is important. This, you know, God's wrath is not this emotional outburst of passion that God feels. It's not like the dragon becomes enraged because he's frustrated. It's not that at all. But God's wrath is this settled response and reaction to sin and the activity of Satan. And um, I hope some of you were able to hear uh, Sigby yesterday from his book in Revelation. He brings this out, which I really appreciate. It says the third angel's message emerges as the most pointed and explicit reaction to the dragon's, excuse me, explicit reaction to the dragon's action. And this really coheres very well with how Revelation uses the concept of wrath in the book of Revelation. God's wrath, God's orge, is a reaction to sin. It's a settled opposition to, a settled reaction to sin, and a response to Satan's activity, or as Thompson said, to the dragon's actions. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, there are the three places in the book of Revelation where you find both of these words together, and Revelation 14, 10, Revelation 16, 19, and Revelation 19, 15. And as we look at these three different main texts for us, uh, looking at some other texts as well, we find that the metaphors that are wrapped around these three key passages uh, are the metaphor of the wine of God's wrath, the cup of his indignation. Perhaps I should include in there the wine press. So that's one metaphor. Let me say it this way, wine cup, wine press. So that's one metaphor. And then the other metaphor that's used in the book of Revelation is, is the seven last plagues. In Revelation 16, 19, of course, is the culmination of the seven last plagues. And so let's explore together these metaphors and see what they tell us about understanding of God's wrath, particularly because we find in these places, these are the key spots where you have the wine press and, um, excuse me, you have both words used in the book of Revelation talking about God's wrath, 1410, 16, 19, 19, 15. And let's start with the plagues. So as we begin to think about the plagues in the book of Revelation, uh, we understand that there is an ongoing fall of Babylon. Revelation 14, 8, the second angel's message, tells us Babylon is fallen. Uh, and this is not a complete fall by any means, but it is fallen. As a system, it's fallen. As a representation of God, it's fallen. Certainly, John is drawing on the biblical imagery of Babylon. And if we go back to the origin of the kingdom of Babylon, to the plain of Shinar, and the setting up of the Tower of Babel, there's a play on words in the Hebrew between gate of God and confusion, a play on words in the, in the Hebrew there. Um, and I understand that to mean that the play on words indicate that there is confusion over the way to the gate of God, or Babylon is a representation over confusion on how one reaches God. Do we have to build this tower to get to heaven? Um, do we have to do something on ourselves? Or is the plan of salvation one that comes from heaven down to us? 
which is really the key part of the gospel, God reaching down into you to our need in humanity to rescue us. So, but Babylon's fallen. Babylon is fallen in Revelation 14, 8. But there is a succession of the collapse of Babylon, just like there's a succession of falls of Satan, of Satan being thrown down in Revelation. You know, Revelation 12 has series of falls of, of Satan. Revelation 20 is the final fall being thrown into the bottomless pit. Just as Satan has a series of falls, so does Babylon. And so Babylon is fallen in Revelation 14, 8. We find its major collapse in the seven last plagues in chapter 16. And then we get a new insight into that in chapter 17 and chapter 18. So there's this ongoing explanation of the fall of Babylon. And the plagues are integral to understanding that. And again, just to, to kind of pull the imagery together, we're exploring the, the plagues to see what they're telling us about the wrath of God and how God's wrath is being manifested. And so in Revelation chapter 16, um, we find this, excuse me, in Revelation 16, we find the seven last plagues. And in Revelation chapter 16 in verse 19 is the collapse of the great city. It falls into three parts. And Babylon the Great is remembered before God and given up to the wine of his fierce wrath, the wine of his indignation. And when we come to Revelation 17, we find in Revelation 17, three things about Babylon. One, that she is separate from the beast. She rides the beast. She colludes with the beast. She works with the beast. But ultimately, she's destroyed by the beast. And this is important for us in understanding the wrath of God. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 16. And a lot of imagery in Revelation 17. Um, and you might have a lot of questions on Revelation 17. I'm going to try to keep us focused. Again, Revelation 16 ends the, the plagues end with the destruction of Babylon. Babylon falls apart again. It breaks into three parts. Split in the city is broken into three parts. And then in chapter 17, we get a greater detail of how that collapse took place. Remember, the collapse is due to the wine of the wrath of God, okay? The fierce cup of God's wrath and indignation. That's what John says brings about the collapse of Babylon in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 19. When we get to Revelation 17, we get a clearer insight into how Babylon falls. So in Revelation 17 verse 16, it says the 10 horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. So in Revelation here, we're seeing another image and the next passage tells us that God's the one that put this into their mind to fulfill his will. But what's happening here is that the support system of Babylon turns on Babylon itself and brings its destruction. So let's, let's tie that together again. Revelation 16, 19, it's the wrath of God that brings Babylon's collapse. In Revelation 17, 16, it's the support of Babylon turns against it itself. Um, and so as a system, Babylon self-destructs. And this is continued into Revelation chapter 18. In Revelation 18, uh, we have this strong imagery here where John writes, pay her back even as she is paid Give her back to her, give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. 
mix twice as much for her. Now we mentioned that in her cup is the blood of the saints and she will be burned with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Now, as we just read that text that way, it looks like, it sounds like that the Lord God is the one that's creating the fire here. But when we compare it with Revelation 17, in uh, which we just read, it's the support system that, that turns on Babylon and burns her with fire. So we're seeing something here that as we, you know, kind of connecting these dots, reading Revelation carefully, in one place, God ascribes, excuse me, John ascribes the wrath of God to the collapse of Babylon. Chapter 17, he describes, ascribes her collapse to the, those that were supporting her, turning on her, and now here she's burning with fire. In this metaphor, pay her double, you know, what, what does that mean? In this sense of double judgment, it's important for us to kind of get a, a biblical background of that. Um, here's a couple of texts that you could look up later on the law of the false witnesses. I really particularly like the Esther. It's a very clear story form for us where Haman gets back on him what he wanted to do to Mordecai and to the Jews. So Haman's death uh, comes on the gallows that he set up for God's people. So the evil that he intended comes back on himself, or as Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, you know, what we reap, we're going to sow. Now, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, is a different, Isaiah chapter 40 has this whole metaphor of grace, and then it says there about Jerusalem, give her double for her iniquities. Well, my understanding there is that's not double, um, double, uh, what's the right word that I want to use, double response to her sins, but it's actually double grace, because the whole passage is full of grace. God's given grace, and now God's giving double grace for her sins, where sin abound, grace does much more abound. Babylon rejects that and so gets double result falling back upon her own head. Jeremiah 16 verse 18 says something similar. Please look at that text also later. Then we come to the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapter 27, 25 through 36 has a lot of parallels to Revelation 18. I'll just draw your attention there for the interests of time. But in Revelation, excuse me, in Ezekiel chapter 28 and verses 17 and 18, we find the destruction of the king of Tyre, which we see as a double image representing the king of Tyre, but also being a representation of the one that was in Eden, the covering cherub, Lucifer. And in chapter 28, verses 17 and 18, it says that God will bring fire out from within him. So it's, you know, it's almost, again, the same thought that the uh, same idea of what we find with Haman, this evil that he wanted to cast out on others falls back on his own head. And that's what we see happening in Babylon. She, her support system collapses, and then she self-destructs from inside. On one hand, John is very clear about that. But on the other hand, he uses the metaphor of the wrath of God and the plagues. Revelation 18.20, this is my translation, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has judged your judgment. Uh, maybe we could translate that, your vindication, out of her. So the idea is that judgment really, ek auto, it's coming out of her. It's within her that this judgment and justice comes. The same concept that we see in the book of Ezekiel. It's what Babylon gives out comes back upon on her own heads. Here's an interesting quotation from early writings, particularly talking about slave owners. 
in that context, the cries of the oppressed have reached unto heaven and the angels stand amazed at the untold agonized sufferings which man formed in the image of God causes his fellow men. And then she talks about the suffering that's been inflicted upon the slaves will fall back upon the slave owners. You know, what they've given out comes back to them. And then she says, then the justice of God will be satisfied. Not an arbitrary justice in any way, but this, um, again, this, as we find in the book of Esther, manifestation of justice there. So the plagues reveal Babylon being given up to her own choices and actions. And so we can see in this context that the wrath of God understood through the plagues brings us this idea that Babylon reaps what she sows. She's given up to her own choices and given up to her own actions. Now let's shift imagery here and let's go back to Revelation 14. Revelation 14.10 talks about the wine of the wrath of God. And then at the end of Revelation chapter 14, Revelation 14, 19, and 20, we have this other metaphor. And this is the metaphor of the wine, the wine, or the cup, and the wine press. Now, lots of really interesting imagery here, which we don't have a time to explore in full. But first thing we noticed as we look at Revelation 14, and let me just see if I um, gave you the quotation. I didn't. So if you have your text, I invite you to turn there with me, Revelation 14. 19 and 20. And again, this is the second part of the harvest in Revelation 19. And John describes all the, the grapes being harvested. This is a representation of the wicked and thrown into the winepress of the great wrath of God. And then the winepress is pressed and blood comes out of the winepress wine up to the horse's bridles. A couple of things that I want to just highlight. First of all, where does this take place? Well, it takes place outside the city. Um, we could think of an echo of, from the book of Hebrews where Christ went outside the city bearing the shame. Christ was crucified outside the city. But also in the context of the book of Revelation, we think of the city that comes down uh, in Revelation chapter 19, the destruction that takes place outside the city. So we get this idea that it's almost like John is collapsing the end of the book into these two small verses and then latter parts of the book expand this imagery. And it's also very unique that John happens to mention horses' bridles. And so horses are mentioned a few times in the book of Revelation. We think of the four horses under the seals and um, some conversation as to what those represent. But we can also see in these trumpets that there is this satanic army, very clearly a satanic army under the fifth and sixth trumpet, unquestionably a satanic army, which has this imagery of being horses, but they're locusts, but they're lions, very clear um, metaphoric, hyperbolic language describing the satanic army. And so horses bridles in that context. And then of course, when we come to Revelation chapter 19, the same imagery is picked up and horses, again, are mentioned there in this destruction. So John is kind of weaving a number of threads for us to follow through this tapestry. He's wanting us to see in this wine press, not just this arbitrary image that stands alone, but he's wanting us to understand the unfolding of the end of the story, complete with the holy city coming down and the wicked marching up to the holy city and the uh, destruction of the armies in Revelation 19. He's pulling all of that together, compressing it very densely in Revelation chapter 14. And again, he's weaving in this imagery 
of the horse's bridles as a symbol of satanic army again. But let's, let's continue. And um, what I want to point out here is that the imagery or the metaphor of the wine in the cup and the wine press, this imagery merges into the imagery of a battle. And we'll see that in Revelation 19, because in Revelation 19, in verse 15, which is the third place, both of those words are used in the Greek text. Revelation 19, 15 is the wine of wrath of God and the wine press, and it's also in the context of a battle. So John connects these to the battle, but it's also insightful for us that the battle imagery draws us back to the plagues. Why do I say that? Well, the battle of Armageddon. So John is in a really, in a very artistic way, he's pulling all of these threads together to help us to see the plagues, the wrath of God, the wine press, the battle. These are different metaphors trying to communicate a very similar, if not the same truth. Let me say that again. The imagery of the wine of God's wrath, the wine press, God's wrath, the plagues, the battle, you know, it's all trying to draw, draw us together to understanding how God is working with this ultimate battle, this con contest between good and evil. And so all of these threads come together. And so let's go to Revelation chapter 19. Um, and again, uh, another passage that's full of information here in Revelation 19, particularly for the verse 16 um, in verse 15 is where we find both the wine press and the two Greek words, thymus and orge, uh, again, used together in a, in a similar, in a single context in verse 15. And so John's pulling our attention together here, but there's a lot of imagery in this passage. We only have time to touch on a few things. First of all, we see here Christ as a divine warrior. He is pictured as riding on a horse and he's leading his armies. So it's very clear he is portrayed here as a divine warrior. So it's interesting, the three main images of Jesus in the book of Revelation, of Christ in the book of Revelation is the son of man, the lamb, and the divine warrior. We know that he's got flaming eyes, he could see the truth. He's got the diadems, he is reigning. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where Christ wears kingly crown, the diadem, the kingly crown. Satan has it in chapter 12. The beast has it. This is the first place Christ wears it. And then there are four different titles of Christ. He is called faithful and true. Um, and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. We'll come back to that. And then there are the other's name. He's got an unknown name, a, a lot of different threads here. But let's focus here in this idea that his robe is dipped in blood. Verse 13, his clothing, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And this imagery is drawn from a couple of places. We can think of the book of Isaiah, where there's an imagery of the warrior treading the winepress of God's enemies. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Um, Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 through 11. And there's also a Hebrew targum, a Hebrew commentary on that passage, which makes it very clear that this blood spattered on the garments is representative of God's enemies. And so that's a very natural way to read the passage. There's just one major problem. The blood here, this garment is already um, dipped in blood, but the battle hasn't happened yet. And so how is this 
the blood of his enemies. And so um, James Resige in his book on Revelation says this, Christ's garment is stained with blood before the battle because the victory has already been won on the cross. So when we see Christ coming to the battle in a robe dipped in blood, we shouldn't think this is Christ stained with the blood of his enemies, um, you know, as again, this uh, filled with animosity and vindictiveness, but this is an imagery of his own blood and this points us to the way he's already won the war. And this becomes very important for us. So the wine press imagery, the wine, the cup, the wine press imagery merges into the imagery of a battle. The battle imagery connects us back to the seven plagues. Seven plagues, wine press, battle, they're all also connected with the wrath of God in the places where those words are used together, Revelation 19, 15, Revelation 16, um, 16, and Revelation 14, 10. But Revelation also tells us that the battle has already been won, and Revelation manifests how the battle has been won, and this is very important for us um, to understand. This brings us back to Revelation chapter 5. If you, again, didn't hear Sigby's presentation yesterday, please go back and listen to it, where he talked quite a bit about this in the very beginning. And one of the elders, forgive the typo there, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seals. Revelation 5 points out a crisis point. There is some kind of uh, major tension happening in the heavenly council. And the 24 elders, the four living creatures, they are part of the heavenly council, the divine council, and there's angelic beings there. There's this very important book that is sealed with seven seals written on the inside and outside, and, and no one can open it. Revelation 5, 5, you know, there's no one in heaven and earth can open it, and John is, weeps tremendously because of that. Then he's told to stop weeping because somebody can open it. And then he hears the imagery, lying from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, two kingly images and John is conditioned to think of a king, of a ruler. Of course, when he turns to see this king and ruler, as you're well aware, then I saw between the throne uh, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. So right in the midst of the throne, in the midst of everything, is the lamb, lamb standing alive, resurrected, as if slain. The marks of the crucifixion still there. Um, slain, uh, not simply in a sacrificial sense, so I think that's a point to it, but also in slaughtered with violence, put to death in a violent manner. And that's a, a key understanding for us, uh, that the lamb conquers. We think back here to this verse, Revelation 5, 6, the lamb has overcome, the lamb has conquered. We could ask her, well, conquer what? He's conquered Satan. He's conquered in the war. He's conquered the battle. He's already been victorious. In the book of Revelation, the lamb is the main Christological noun in the book of Revelation, and conquering is the main Christological verb. So the lamb has overcome. He's conquered. He's been victorious in the battle. That's why when we look in Revelation chapter 19, he's already having his robe um, uh, dipped in blood. 
And San Jose, again, to keep our connection here with the wrath of God, it's not as though God all of a sudden becomes full with vindication, vindictiveness and animosity, completely the opposite. Um, pardon me if you could hear the thunderstorm rolling in around me. Uh, but, you know, the Babylon self-destructs, the war takes place, Jesus fights the war with the sword of his mouth, which is his word. Uh, there is no, you know, active involvement. Orge is God's reaction to the activity or the reaction to sin and the activity of Satan, as I mentioned earlier. So he has conquered, this lamb has conquered. And what's important for us to understand in the book of Revelation all the way through is what the lamb does, God does. This is Donald Guthrie in his article, The Lamb in the Book of Revelation, The Lamb in Revelation. What the lamb does, God does. So we see how God rules through seeing what the lamb is like. And this is the key interpretive lens that we need to have as we read through the book of Revelation. Yes, it's true that lion and lamb interplay with one another, but we, we need to understand that, this, that the way the lion interacts, the way power is interpreted in the book of Revelation is through self-sacrifice and self-denial. So rather than portraying victory through violence, the slain lamb serves to demonstrate victory through self, through suffering love, through self-sacrificial love. And Lauren Johns in his book, Lamb Christology says, the conquering one conquers by being a slain lamb. The conquering one conquers by being a slain lamb. And so as we look at the wrath of God, we need to look at it through this self-sacrificial love that really God's in anguish saying, how do I give you up? How do I let you go? Yes, the imagery, it, I, granted, seems to be horrific. Wine of the wrath of God. But as we begin to pull the pieces together and we look more closely at the tapestry that John is weaving and we come in and we zoom in and how he's using the images and the verbal threads, we see you know, the imagery, the metaphor of the plagues and the cup and the wine and, and the battle and how they run together and the battle is won through self-sacrifice and Babylon collapses through its own self-destruction and that judgment comes out of Babylon from within her. Her cup is filled with the blood of the saints. The cup of God's wrath really is a cup of blessing that he wants to give to humanity. It only becomes a cup of wrath when that cup of blessing is rejected. But not only is God or the lamb a conqueror, so also are the people of God. And this, again, is important for us to understand our role in this is that we conquer through following the way the lamb conquered. So Revelation 12 and verse 11, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. They overcame him. They conquered him, conquered him, him being Satan. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. That is, they did not love their life even when faced with death. Again, my translation. So that last phrase is an explanatory phrase. It's exegetical. The blood of the lamb, and because of the word of their testimony, John is explaining what it means to have the word of the testimony. The word of their testimony is they're willing to lay down their life for the cause of Christ. They, they don't love their life even when faced with death. They're willing to yield their life even when faith with death, faced with death. 
As I mentioned already in Revelation 17, 16, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. But God's people conquer by being conquered. Revelation 13, 8, the dragon gives authority to the beast to conquer God's people, but they conquer by being conquered. They win in the war by following after the one who has already won the war. Some uh, closing thoughts here from Ellen Whiteman, some questions if you have any. To our merciful God, the act of punishment is a strange act. The nation with which he bears long will finally drink the cup of wrath unmixed with mercy. And that's because mercy has been rejected. Um, people reach a point where God's continued extension of grace to them will no longer benefit them. They've hardened their senses, clothed them, closed themselves off to God, and this becomes an act, a strange act to God. Uh, a couple of other quotations. This is from Desire of Ages. In the day of final judgment, every lost soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of truth. The cross will be presented and its real bearing will be seen by every mind that has been blinded by transgression. Before the vision of Calvary with its mysterious victims, sinners will stand condemned. And what is it that brings this condemnation? It's the vision of Calvary. It's seeing the slain lamb that brings this vision of condemnation. Again, this does not exhaust the understanding of the wrath of God. We mentioned that in the very beginning, but this is a key component for us, especially in the book of Revelation. Men will see what their choice has been. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversies, this is a battle theme again, will then have been made plain. In the judgment of the universe, God will stand clear of the blame for the existence or continuance of evil. Everyone will say, just and true are your ways. Holy are you, O Lord. Then there's this article that I want to kind of just draw to a close with. Um, this is from a Bible Echo from 1895, May 30th. Ellen White writes here, the atonement of Christ has given opportunity to every soul to become a child of God. So everyone has this opportunity through the atonement of Christ. But those who continue in transgression, transgression, excuse me, become one with the originator of sin. That's an important thought. They become one with the originator of sin. They draw their nourishment from Satan. Um, and when I first read that, in, in all honesty, it really you know, kind of gave me chills, like how revolting. But if I'm rejecting the gospel, if I'm turning away from the wooing, winsome love of Christ, and I'm continuing in transgression, I'm becoming one, like in a marriage relation, I'm becoming one with the originator of sin, and then drawing nourishment from Satan. And then she goes on, and in this article, she talks about something she read. She describes in, in the article, I'm just going to I'll stop sharing my screen momentarily and tell you the story and then we'll come back to it. Um, she talks about a, in a very lengthy several paragraphs of an article that she read of a young girl who was lost in the woods and in the snow. And you might have read something similar to this in the Desire of Ages. And the girl got lost in the woods and she was traveling and uh, wandering. And eventually she comes to the cold and collapses in the snow. And, you know, her energy, her life forces are ebbing away. Fortunately, as Ellen White describes it in the article she read, some woodsmen come along, and they find her, they gently put her on some boards, they carry her back to their home, their cabin in the woods, and they gently, gently nourish her, you know, give her warmth, 
and bring her back to health. And then they bring her back to full health. She is alive and she's ultimately reunited with her parents. And what a tremendous rejoicing there is there. And then she, of course, makes the connection to us and what are we doing and how are we helping people that might be on the verge of succumbing to the allure of Satan's deception and falling asleep in the snow of sin. And uh, what are we doing to awaken and to rescue them? And then she kind of pivots a little bit. And she says, what would the parents have said if they had found out these woodsmen found her and then they passed on um, and did not help her? So let me go back and share my screen and give you the rest of the quotation. Then it, um, quotation continues. Um, she says, the sufferings of every man are the sufferings of God's child. And those who pass by their perishing fellow beings without pity or help provoke God's grievous anger. It is the wrath of the lamb. So before that, you know, she had mentioned how the parents would be wild with indignation that their child had been lost through the action, the callousness, the coldness. And um, she says something similar in Desire of Ages, but it's much more poignant here in the Bible Echo. And again, bringing out this connection that we are part of this web of humanity. And what are we doing for others? How are we interacting with others? And then there's this beautiful quotation, be faithful to your fellow men and, and, and you will please God. Great quotation, I love this. Be faithful to your fellow men and you will please God. He loves the world, love it too, and you will be accepted by him. Yes, righteousness is by faith, unquestionably. The three angels' messages are full of faith. Um, you know, they're based on justification by faith. And here's a very practical aspect. Love the world because God loves it, and you will be accepted by him. And in our world that we're living in today, where there's racial tensions, economic tensions, again, how are we demonstrating the love of God? You know, let us not be recipients of this you know, tearful wrath that God will feel at the end of time for those that neglected others. But let us become one with him in enduring or attempting to bring salvation to others. Well, thank you very much for your time and your attention. And uh, at this point, Curtis, if we have any questions, we could take those. All right. Well, we certainly do have some questions here, Stephen. And the first question from Robert, thank you for your great questions here, Robert. Uh, question is, um, the cup in the third angel's message, is it the same as the cup of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? I'm reading that question. It, right? Is it the same? Um, I think there's a connection. You know, clearly, the cup that Jesus wants to, that Jesus is praying, as I mentioned, remove this cup for me. Then, you know, the, the imagery of the cup is very prevalent in scriptures. You can find it in a lot of Psalms, Psalm 75, verse 8, Psalm 60, verse 3, you know, Psalm um, Job 21, 20. So the imagery of the cup is very prevalent in scripture. Are they exactly the same? Uh, perhaps. I think the imagery is slightly different, but certainly Jesus is asking, let this cup be removed from me. Let the cup of God's wrath be removed from me. Definitely, there's a connection. Okay, thank you. Uh, the next question I have, uh, you touched on God's wrath being his giving, be, uh, giving his, um, let me just read this again. Here. 
you touched on God's wrath being his giving beast over to his sins. Are there other aspects to God's wrath or is it primarily a giving over experience? So as I mentioned in the very beginning, uh, I, I think there are different aspects of God's wrath. There's an example that I mentioned in the book of Numbers. And then of course there's um, the wrath of God abides on people today, John 3, 36. And then there's the giving over aspect of it. I think, I think we need to be careful of truncating God's wrath. But from Revelation's perspective, it's very clear. I think it's clear what's taking place. In, let me say this, in no aspect of God's wrath is it arbitrary, revengeful, or personal. The Bible never says God is wrath. The Bible says God is love. God, there is a, a noun, God's wrath. Um, but so, so in, in no aspect of God's wrath is it revengeful or filled with animosity or vindictive or arbitrary but I think there are different dimensions of God's wrath. Okay, next question. Did Jesus fully experience the wrath of God in Gethsemane and Calvary? Well, I would have to answer that. Yes, in the affirmative. Uh, unquestionably. Okay. Uh, what does- it feels like there's a- uh, Chris, it feels like there's a follow-up question to that question, but um, but yes, I would definitely say that, yes, he definitely experienced God's wrath to the okay. fullest and to the deepest. All right. What does wine refer to as metaphor in general, and specifically, what is the wine in God's cup? That was maybe the follow-up in a way. Yeah, so good, good question. So, you know, you have this these counter images in the book of Revelation. So there's the wine of Babylon, which is an intoxicating wine, which you know, brings about spiritual confusion. Um, one commentator that I mentioned, I referred to it in the presentation, that the cup of Babylon is filled with the blood, perhaps slash wine, of God's people. That's a potential image. The wine of God's cup Perhaps we could see if we were following the counter images in the book of Revelation might be filled with the blood of Christ. Excellent. Uh, we have a question here from Joy. And it reads, um, in John 3.36, believe not, in King James Version, is translated disobeys in the NRSV. Can you comment on how the concepts of belief and obedience have been disconnected in modern thought, but not in the Bible. Similarly, faith and faithfulness are the same in the Greek word. But people think they can have faith without being faithful. Can you help us see how those concepts are connected? Okay, so it's, it's true, um, particularly in English, maybe not so much in other languages. You know, we have this idea of to believe, um, but we don't have this, uh, this concept of to faith. You know, it's one thing we could say um, to believe or we have faith as a noun. We don't really have an expression in English to say to faith or to live out our faith. Uh, but unquestionably, there, there's this close connection between 
a faith that's lived, as Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, faith without works, or James tells us faith without works is dead being alone. Um, so there's this intimate connection where faith always manifests itself. What Paul tells us in Galatians is that faith works by love continually all the time. In John 3.36, um, my memory is slipping me for, for right now for the exact Greek word that's translated there in, again, in the King James and the modern translations, there's a difference there. One is to not to believe and whether is to disobey. I actually think that's a grammatical translation that I feel like it's a different word, but your concept is correct. Certainly true faith always brings forth fruit in obedience. Excellent. Okay, we have come to the end of our time here, Stephen. Really Great. want to just uh, express our appreciation to you. I'm speaking, I'm sure, on behalf of our whole audience here this afternoon, uh, how this has been such a special time in just understanding uh, more deeply God's love for us and his character. Um, Stephen, would you be willing to just close with prayer here as we wrap up our time? My privilege. Father in heaven, we thank you for your consistent and undying love for us. We thank you for the way it's been manifested through Christ and his self-sacrifice. We pray that you would teach us how to live lives of dedicated service to you. And as the Sabbath is soon approaching us, depending on where we are in the world, we pray that uh, we would truly enter into the blessings of this, pardon me, of this Sabbath. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.